people who argued in favor of expanding universal healthcare said, well, right now we're using our emergency room as a triage. It's kind of a, a weird corollary to what's happening in immigration, which is those, the rest of our system isn't functioning properly. So everybody's showing up. And in this case, the people who suffer the most here are the people with credible claims of asylum. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, how goes it out there in the state of California? No complaints. Got a nice sunny day and yeah. Joe says you're not allowed to talk about the weather anymore. So you got to well, give us something I'm, else. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't really have anything else. Well, my, my heat wasn't working today, so we boiled some water. So we'll talk about gas stoves and I'm contributing to the problem here. Oh, I'll, I'll allow it. Although I think that's how adjacent is- to weather. That's like internal climate. Mm. But that's fine. Yeah. Well, well it's all climate in my mind. How's Costa Rica? Well, speaking of climate in my mind, so I we did this segment on psychedelics. Well, when was it? Like mm. six months ago, probably. And I've never I'd never done psychedelics before. And this weekend I did psilocybin for the first time. So mushrooms. Okay. Uh and I did uh-huh. a what they would say is a ego dissolving dose of it. I did it up in the mountains here in Costa Rica. Okay. And I would say that it was an overwhelmingly positive experience and largely, I think, confirmed a lot of things that we talked about on the show. Like, we'll link to it in the show notes, that that episode. But, you know, there's this book by Michael Pollan, uh, you know, this sort of famed science writer, where he talks about the sort of clinical uses of this, but also argues that in, mm. you know, well people who are not seeking to solve any particular ailment, there are certain benefits of it. And... That certainly was my experience. Do you consider yourself among those well people? I think so. <laughs> well, you tell me. <laughs> but it was it was quite an experience. I would say there's certain people who it's for, and there's certain people it was mm-hmm. not for. I'm definitely one of those people who it was for. I, I certainly would do it again. You're one with the universe now. I think so. Like the wind was blo- it was the windiest day I can remember in Costa Rica. And I was up in a mountain in this like shack that was like swaying, and the wind was part of the experience. So I was like talking to the wind. And mm. it was quite a, it was beautiful. Okay. It, it's so cliche and stupid when, when you talk about it, but it actually was really profound. And, and what were you saying to the wind? So there was this moment when the, there were like memories coming and going, right? So, so much of the experience, when people think about mushrooms, they think of like the visual stuff, right? And I was wearing mm-hmm. eye shades most of the time, but yeah, when I would take them off, yet like the mountain in front of me was breathing at one point, the, the leaves in the mountain turned to autumn, uh, from green to autumn, which is really interesting. But there was nothing crazy in the visual stuff. Okay. But at one point I was like kind of going through memories and stuff. And there were memories I kind of wanted to sit with. Like there was something involved with my dad. And then, but the wind would blow the memories away. And so at a mm-hmm. certain point, I just started having a conversation with the wind. And it's so cliche and silly to say out loud exactly what I was saying to the wind. So I won't say it because you'll give me a hard time about no, it. No, I want to hear it. But I, it was, I desperately want to hear that. Was, you can't do this whole wind up and not tell me what happened to the wind. It was beautiful. It was beautiful as all I'll say. It was, and, it, okay. and it's, it's weird because you're having this conversation with something that you know is you because who, what, I mean, depending on who you are and what you believe. But for me, I, I knew it was me, but it was definitely kind of, interacting in its own way so it was it was something 
Uh, I'm actually on them right now. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell. One of these days. Well, we've got three (laughs) big stories to talk about today. Biden went to the border last week. We'll unpack his new sweeping immigration plans and the responses to them. Then we'll turn to a debate around America's retirement age. But first, let's turn to a controversy around gas stoves. Comments from a member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC, have fired up a major debate. We need to be talking about regulating gas stoves, whether that's drastically improving emissions or banning gas stoves entirely. Will the United States of America ban gas stoves? Can they even do that? Are these people insane? The Biden administration is not coming to take your gas stove. The gas industry does not want to talk about the health risks of gas stoves. A proposed gas stove ban is getting heated. Well, this debate has been heating up since a December 21st meta-analysis was released that shows that about 12.7% of childhood asthma can be traced back, at least in part, to the use of gas stoves and exposure to um, nitrogen oxide in the household that kids are growing up in. And so in response, the Consumer Safety Commissioner made some comments saying, you know, maybe we'll talk about how this hidden hazard could be banned in new constructions going forward. And people reacted Pretty swiftly, as we heard in that little montage there, um, a lot of libertarian, you're not going to take my gas stove sort of uh, mantras coming out of the past couple weeks here. But that statement has not been walked back since outrage and Biden has distanced himself from any sort of suggestion that we might ban gas stoves outright. But there's renewed conversation around like, What are the environmental risks? What are the health risks? What are the safety risks? And is that something that we should at the very least be um, wary of with new constructions and new appliances? Yeah, I think this whole controversy says more about us as Americans and where we are as a society than it does about gas stoves. You know, this study, yes, like this, this was an important study. And if you take it at face value, it shows something that we should all be concerned about. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get to the science in that study, and there are definitely some important caveats to that data. But by and large, like, is there probably a better technology than gas stoves that's safer? And or is there a better way to handle gas stoves than we are right now in certain places? Yes. But this was an errant comment by a Biden administration that was pretty quickly walked back. And the fact that, as the listeners could hear, that people jumped on this and whipped their own audiences into hysteria, to me, is the story. And there's this sense, you tell me, Ricky, like, I have this sense that certain segments of the right wing are only satisfied if their listeners are just in a constant state of anxiety. Like, why are we worrying about this? Like, this guy floated something, he walked it back, and now you want your audience to now live in fear that somebody's going to come for your gas stove, like Ron DeSantis tweeting memes, like basically using the don't tread on me imagery. It's almost like there's a fetishization of the government coming after us, you know? I think the meme's a little different. It's kind of funny. The like, don't tread on me with instead of the snake, it's the stove. It's kind of just ridiculous and and dumb and culture warsy. And he, you know, he always likes to get in on the culture wars action to potentially his benefit in terms of the press that he's getting because we don't stop talking about him. But, um, you know, I think there's there was definitely some hyperventilating over this, especially after it was then walked back. And a lot of like 
insinuations that this was some somehow an environmental Trojan horse because there have been talks about how like gas stoves are environmentally unfriendly and maybe this is like a new angle to ban them. Um, by and large, though, I would say like, yes, there was it, there was an overreaction. I think there was legitimate reaction to this, though, of like our our government officials should not have this knee jerk reaction to ban everything just without even like having a plan or just say something off the cuff like that, um, that does affect millions of Americans potentially. And there was definitely a lack of nuance in terms of, well, like, what about mandating ventilation when people use gas stoves around kids? Or what is the difference between a home and a restaurant? Um, a restaurant tour went on Fox News and claims that he would lose 40% of his productivity if they had to change from gas stoves. I'm not sure how to quantify that or refute that. But, um, you know, if that claim is true, then maybe there's a little more nuance here than just the off the cuff, like, oh, we'll ban something that is in millions of households. I don't think that's ever really like a good thing to just casually toss around. But I do agree that, you know, the news media as a whole, all sides, but in this instance, certainly the right does enjoy getting people outraged over things. And this was definitely not our proudest culture war moment as a country, I would say. Um, it's it's a little ridiculous. I, I will definitely admit it. You know, what I say to those people is there are plenty of countries out there where you can get plenty of practice fighting truly authoritarian regimes. This isn't one of them. Yes, the government overreaches, but I would have them read it. You know, I used to have my kids read this in school, you know, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Like there are actually legitimate government overreaches, but every time you jump on something like this, you're exhausting your audience. And at a certain point, if you fear everything, and if you're you know chasing after every little possible story, then you don't have the energy to fight the things that actually truly are overreach. And we've talked about so many of the true overreach on the show that exists. This just isn't it. But the study is actually important. And if, the, if I were to do a segment, which I guess we are, is kind of meta, we are doing a segment here, there actually are important things to learn from this study. They, so this is just to lay out some of the, the details of the study. Uh, gas stove use happens in 35% of American households. So the study uh, was a meta-analysis of 27 previously published studies. This went back to 2013. And it did find that the key driver of asthma, I mean, we're not talking about 50% of asthma cases, but the key driver more than anything else they could find were uh, gas stoves. But very importantly, they didn't control for behavior. And I'll quote this from the study. Our results align with a cross-sectional study, which found that the use of a gas stove or oven for heat was a main risk factor for doctor-diagnosed asthma in U.S. children under age six. And quote, using this they weren't. They didn't control this data and disaggregate the data for people who are using gas stoves to heat their their places, which is a significant portion of people, and is obviously more prevalent for people who are uh, lower income, uh, people who are at risk otherwise. Mm -hmm. And and I have major questions of whether they then controlled for other factors that you know would be present in those populations. So there are all sorts of questions. Emily Oster had a really good uh, post on her Substack, basically pouring some cold water in this, but essentially saying there are things to learn, particularly that proper ventilation is really key. If you're going to have a gas stove, you need to properly ventilate your place. Yeah. And just to flesh out um, that data a little bit, one in five families that make less than $30,000 a year use their gas stoves as a heating mechanism. Um, it's 
I can attest to the fact that it's very effective because our I woke up this morning, our heat wasn't working, so we boiled a ton of water with our gas stove. Um, it's nice and humid in here now, but also I think there's probably, there could be a correlation between income level and whether or not you want to turn on the ventilation or the hood over your stove because that's additional power that you're using and maybe you're trying to save a few bucks. But I mean, at the very least, this can give people a little more like pause if that is something that they're they're relying on in terms of heat if they do have young children in the house um but obviously there's a ton of different contexts like restaurants like um i mean new constructions versus banning them outright there's there's a lot of questions here there's a lot of nuance that i think we could apply to the situation rather than just a ban. Um, but I think part of the backdrop of why people were at first so alarmed by this is that this is kind of on the um, tail end of some existing laws passing. Um, more than 100 cities have regulated gas stoves to a degree for environmental reasons. Um, New York City in 2021 said that there will be no new hookups in small constructions of buildings under seven stories. Um, California banned natural gas fired furnaces and water heaters starting in 2030. And so there is an environmental move away from this. And I think that some people were wondering like, oh, if that angle didn't work, then now we're going to pull the asthma angle, which doesn't seem to really be like this just seems to be an off the cuff kind of ill-considered comment but going forward, the Consumer Product Safety Commission um, is not taking any regulatory action right now. They're gathering more data and will propose solutions later this year. So I think, you know, if there is outrage to be had, let's wait till that comes out um, mm -hmm. and hopefully no more gaffes about gas stoves in the interim. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's important to note that electric stoves, and I have an electric stove in my apartment, which doesn't work. They replaced my gas stove when it broke with an electric one, I think per this New York City Council rule from 2021, it's a joke. Uh, but these electric stoves are actually, they have their own risks. So the National Fire Protection Association in July 2020 found that electric stoves had a higher risk of cooking fires and associated losses than gas stoves. So it's, it's not a clean debate here, uh, mm -hmm. but it is rather silly the way it's playing out. So if you have a gas stove, I would just, you know, hire somebody who's an expert on this kind of stuff to come in and take a look at it. There, there are people you can actually, I learned this recently, especially in major cities, there are people you can actually hire to come in and test your apartment's air quality. Mm -hmm. So I imagine those people are the kind of people who could do that. They also could test for carbon monoxide and mold and other things. And it probably makes a lot of sense, especially if your place is old like mine. Like my apartment is like a ship's hull. It's like basically slowly rotting away. So I imagine there's a lot of poor air quality issues. So I actually scheduled um, for the month I get back somebody to come in there and test that. And I think I'm going to have them test for this, even though I don't have a gas stove, just test to see like, you know, they have all these machines to make sure I'm breathing some good air. And turn on your stove hood. Well, President Biden just visited the border. It's his first trip in his presidency so far. And this is amidst a backdrop that's 
pretty rough in terms of the encounters that we've been seeing um, during his presidency. For comparison's sake, in 2019, we had 228,000 encounters. 2020, it went up to 241,000. And now in 2022, we just had 551,000. So that is an enormous jump. Biden is facing only a 38% public approval rating of his handling of the issue. And this visit is two years into his presidency, which his administration says is because he was waiting to get more details and clarification on Title 42 and how much longer that policy will be in place. But for a lot of conservatives and a lot of liberals, this is too little too late. That's Greg Abbott's um, accusation, considering he is the governor of a border state. But Biden headed down there amidst some policy changes that are really important. But I think it is important that two years in, he's finally gotten down there. Yeah, I thought it was Kamala Harris was in charge of this issue. I, I don't know where she's been on this. But a little MIA. I, yeah, she. I saw an article today saying she was taking credit for the midterm results, which is incredible. Oh, but I saw this photo of Abbott greeting Biden at the airport, and I was like, wow, bipartisanship. And then I read the fine print where he handed him that letter that you were talking about, where he said $20 billion too little and two years too late. But- you know, Biden was going to catch heat no matter what. You can't touch immigration. We know this. You know, you, the, you could just Google John McCain and immigration and just see like the kind of yeah. death spiral you can get into politically trying to solve this issue. But it is among the most important issues we have as a society, among the most vulnerable, and something so deeply entrenched in our country's history. Where you know most people are children of immigrants in this country. And, you know, I, I, have, I have so many immigrant lineages in my family. I, I need to take a DNA test to even figure it all out, you know, going starting with my dad most recently, but then going pre-revolutionary war like this. This is a country that's so cliche, but the cliche is meaningful that this is a nation founded on immigrants. And how this how we get this policy balance right is critical. It is worth noting that, at least according to data, that the most recently available data we have, net international migration to this country, uh, accounting for both arrivals and departures, uh, is the smallest increase we've had in the past three decades. And you know, this is the period uh, July 2020 to July 2021. And we can go over the reasons for that, the COVID pandemic, Trump administration policy, et cetera. But this is not the crisis that people are making it out to be. The, the crisis is is there, but I don't think it's the amount of people arriving. I think it's how we're treating them and the lack of any sense of vision of who we want in this country and how we select them and give them any sense of transparency over how we're going about that process. Well, I think we also have to expand a little bit beyond 2020 to 2021, because between 2021 and 2022, we did see the difference of 294,000 encounters at the border to 551,000. So there is a recent uptick since that data point that I do think is important to look at um, post-pandemic, especially with Title 42 still in place and a lot of confusion around what's actually happening at the border, confusion about whether people will be expelled, whether the Biden administration will be soft on migrants. It's There's just a lot of, like a lack of clarity in general. But I think that Biden 
notably is going down there because he do, does have two big policy changes that are going to be in effect for the next two years that are very significant to prognosis long term on what the border looks like, including in implementing a parole system and expanding expulsions for migrants. And just to run through this parole system first, he is now going to grant 30,000 migrants a month um, from specific countries a form of parole, which would give them a work or authorization for two years. These are people coming from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela who are facing repression, poverty, chaos at home, like people People that would traditionally come through the asylum system in America. And there are some requirements here, which is that they need to have a financial sponsor in the United States. They need to pass a background check. They need to have an international passport. They have to have proof of vaccination. They cannot be a dual national and they could not have crossed the border illegally since January 5th of this year. So the reason that they picked these four countries as uh, places that people could apply for this parole system is because migrants from these countries make up half of all encounters at the border right now. Obviously, these are people that are struggling very much at home. And this system would allow them, rather than come to the border and try to figure out asylum or get across illegally, to apply from home, go through this system, and then actually have like a pathway into the United States, at least for the two-year period of time that they get a work authorization. So it's a compromise. It's clearly not perfect. There are a lot of hoops that people still have to jump through, but it is a path for these people. Yeah. And our producer talked to an immigration lawyer who pointed out something counterintuitive about this which they have one of the requirements is financial sponsorship. And you'd think that would be the limiting factor. But this immigration lawyer said that he estimated that 80 to 90% of Venezuelans who he's worked with Mm -hmm. had passports that either expired or didn't have passports at all. So this passport requirement could be an issue. And often that the consular systems in these countries are either really dysfunctional or not functional at all. And so this could close off the path for a lot of people. And it's, it's one of those... Areas where there's just not an easy answer. Obviously, you want yeah. to be able to verify people's identities. Like, that's really important for people coming in the country. But also, at the same time, sometimes the people who are most likely have a credi- credible claim of repression or are coming from countries that are deeply troubled, uh, you know, in terms of their government. And, and you know, and, and if, if you're somebody who fears the government, by definition, you could have a hard time getting proper paperwork and getting out of your country. So it is a catch-22. Yeah. And there's also kind of a degree of privilege in a very like relative sense in terms of what sort of people from these countries would have a financial sponsor in the United States. So that's yet another reason that it's clearly not a perfect fix that's controlling for the people most at risk in these countries. But at the very least, it is a pathway for some of them. And more, um, just to give a sense of scale, than the last 15 years of people from these countries who are allowed to come in combined. Uh, So this would be 360,000 people who now have a pathway, which in my estimation, we're never going to become like the, the perfect asylum for everybody whose country has a problem. Like this is a better situation than allowing 360,000 people to either like endanger themselves and risk their lives by trying to cross the border illegally or to suffer in their home countries. Yeah. And there's a ton of data that suggests that the amount of, although this is an unprecedented increase in recent memory of lawful immigration, it is dwarfed by the amount of unlawful immigrants 
trying to come from those very countries that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Not that it necessarily will solve all of that, but if it can, then it actually could lead to fewer people, but people who are under a transparent system that maybe has some sense of logic to it. Yeah. There's another part to the story, Ricky, which is Title 42. So Biden also announced that migrants coming from those four countries you mentioned who enter the country unlawfully will now be returned to Mexico under Title 42. And our listeners are probably accustomed to Title 42 at this point, but this is a pandemic era emergency power, which you'd imagine conservatives would be against. Uh, And then you have Biden um, basically at the same time, he, you know, he declared pandemic over at various points. But as we've talked about in other laws, including student loan relief, he's trying to claim that the pandemic is ongoing uh, and giving Mm -hmm. him emergency power. So you have both Biden and Republicans going against trends here. In November of this year, a federal judge struck down Title 42. GOP states appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court issued a stay, keeping Title 42 in place while it reviews the case. And so it's likely a Title 42 stays in place until June 2023. It is is absolutely a game of ping pong here at this point. And so if you're following along, you're like, what is going on? The easy way to look at this is that right now it's in place. Biden is trying to get Title 42 lifted while he is also strangely invoking it, which is weird. And I don't, we don't have time to do justice to that mangled series of logic. But let's take a step back, Ricky. Let's talk about asylum itself, because I think people are listening and are like, all right, what, what, do we, what part of immigration are we talking about here? And so let's situate asylum in the larger discussion around immigration. Yeah, so asylum, um, just by definition, is protection from a foreign state, which means you need to be um, a refugee from a place that we consider to be hostile to you or dangerous for you, and also present in the United States or seeking entry. So there's two ways to get asylum in this country. Traditionally, um, you can get here and go straight to border control and apply for affirmative asylum, or you can come here and if the border patrol um, encounters you and you've not just proactively applied, you then end up in the defensive asylum court system. And either way, you get to live your life in the United States in the interim while you get your day in court and you get justice served. You can spend, on average, 4.3 years in the system waiting, which a lot of conservatives, I think, rightfully criticize because that's 4.3 years on average that somebody is here illegally, that they're working and living their life and in the system. I mean, of course, I'm not going to vilify them as an individual, but the system is clearly not working, um, considering that only 30% of asylum applications are granted. So, you know, theoretically, 70% of the people who are here living their lives technically legally once they're in that system and waiting because they're being granted that um, are just out doing their thing. And so that's kind of creating a perverse incentive at the border, in my opinion. But these are people with these new policies who would otherwise end up in the asylum process that now could be in the parole process, which would give us more time to chip away at the incredible backlog of people, um, some of whom are very legitimately, incredibly waiting for asylum from a, a hostile foreign state. And so, you know, this is just amidst a backdrop of a completely backed up, clogged and continuously clogging system that so far there's been no satisfying solution to. Yeah, I spent a summer in New Haven when I was in law school 
handling asylum cases for people. In, in the state of Connecticut, they have this law that allows law students to represent people in court. So I used to go to immigration court and uh, argue these cases. And what was obvious then and is even more true now is that even if you lose these cases and only 30% of applications are granted and it's very complicated, even if you lose your case, you're not deported immediately. Uh, they do this thing, they issue a what's called a final order of removal and you could be picked up and deported, but I know we've our press has been you know filled with ice raids and things like that, but that's actually like a very small percentage of deportations. Essentially, you're in this country unless you get caught crossing the border or you get arrested for breaking the law. And so often people, they have no incentive, there's no incentive not to file these asylum claims. It's a, it's yeah, a way to, absolutely. to see if you can make it to that 30%. And if you don't make it, you're basically the equivalent the very of somebody least, who didn't The very least 4.3 years. Right. Yeah. And so it, it reminds me of the debate around universal health care back in the day where people who argued in favor of expanding universal health care said, well, right now we're using our emergency room as a triage and where people are going and, and waiting for, you know, to, to take care of medical needs until they become so emergent that uh, they walk in with something really terrible and by law we have to treat people in every emergency room. It's kind of a, a weird corollary to what's happening in immigration, which is those, the rest of our system isn't functioning properly. So everybody's showing up at you know to these asylum officers and, and immigration courts claiming asylum, whether they have a credible claim of asylum or not. And just like in the case of emergency rooms being overwhelmed, uh, it hurts everybody with a, a with a true emergency. In this case, the people who suffer the most here are the people with credible claims of asylum because they're the ones whose wait time is increasing. They're also now being met with more skepticism than ever before because there are so many. And, and I want to be careful. Like I there are plenty of people who've endured economic hardship. I will never, ever see who want to be in this mm -hmm. country who and I would I would love to find a way to get them in this country, but it's not the same as asylum as we see it right now. We have to treat that differently, and but we're not treating it differently right now. And everybody suffers, especially those who have credible claims. And so I think that's that's the real tragedy here. And hopefully, this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's like a permanent step in the right direction because it obviously still hinges on Title 42 and it's not perfect in terms of the people that it's selecting for. But I definitely think the Venezuelan example of how that has worked to such a dramatic degree, reducing encounters by 90% so far is promising, at least in the short term, to figure out longer term solutions. I'm not super optimistic with um, our partisan gridlock here that that's necessarily going to happen anytime soon. But I don't know if we could have a moment that more demands some bipartisan um, cooperation. But by and large, like I just I don't envy Biden's position at all whatsoever because there's very little he can do um, without at least some bipartisan support behind him. But I would say like I don't think this is a long term solution, but I also don't necessarily hate it. It's a use of the legal migration system to increase border security, which I think 
like, no, this is not a sustainable use of it, but yes, that is a move in the right direction. As a libertarian, I would like a um, more clear and concise border policy. I certainly don't want an open border, but I want an enforceable border policy that will prevent people from understandably attempting to cross the border with some sense that our laws won't be enforced or that they're unenforceable or there's some provision that can allow them to kind of skirt around things and they're endangering themselves in the process and they're harming the chances of legitimate asylum seekers to come in the process. And so this is a way to prioritize at least more of the right people and to ensure that there's some degree of control. So, I mean, if Venezuela's test case is any um, proof of concept here, I'm I'm at the very least in the next two years while this is in place, um, feeling good about this as at least a patchwork solution. Yeah. I mean, it's this is one part of the larger immigration debate, obviously. And I think I'm not exactly bullish that compromise will happen in the Senate and the House. But yeah. if there was one, we could imagine what it looks like, which is you take certain things that conservatives want things like increased border security, also codifying Title 42, right? This is, right now we're using an emergency provision. We could go back over our prior laws and give the government the authority to do what it's doing under Title 42. Now, obviously that alone, it would be hard to get past the 60 vote threshold in the Senate because a lot of Democrats would vote against that on its own. But if you combine the border security with the Title 42 reform, and then you uh, increase the amount of people coming into this country for the jobs that we need, nurses, doctors, all the way down to service industry employees, right? Just people across the spectrum right now. We have you know, the lowest unemployment we've seen in our lifetime. And people need work, like they need jobs in these countries. They come here for jobs. And people here need, people are having such a hard time all across America. Listeners, ask yourself, you walk into either the restaurant down the street or the hospital down the street or even the school down the street, everybody's saying the same thing. It's hard to find good people. So let's use our immigration system to solve that. And then we can also invest in improving the asylum system at the same time, along the lines of what Biden's doing, but dramatically increase the amount of people, streamline the efficiency of what we're doing right now so that we're not handing people off from one system to the next and losing track of what's happening people here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then have a solution for all long-term residents who are undocumented immigrants in this country, whether you're here for asylum or you walked across the border and haven't presented yourself to the authorities with any rationale. Um, incentivize people to come out from the shadows, give people visas and work permits uh, on the condition that they do certain things like pass background checks, uh, declare for taxes, et cetera. And I think like you put all that stuff together, common sense people would come together, even if you are more hot about one of those issues or not, most people will come together and be like, okay, that's better than the status quo. But it's a reflection of the dysfunction in Congress that we're not even close to that. There's kind of a cynical aspect to what both the right and the left are doing right now with this because everyone feels as though the other side won't give. And so 100% it's true that we would benefit from having more people come into this country. But I think we also really need to fundamentally rethink what our asylum process looks like because to demand that people either get encountered or come to the border and encounter border control in order to get asylum is really not 
a, a good system to say, oh, come here and then we'll help you. I mean, it incentivizes people to do very dangerous things. And this program actually is kind of a, a meaningful step in the direction of getting people to apply from home. Obviously, there are hurdles that are involved in that, but I think that that's a more sustainable process. And using legal migra- migration, using temporary visas or using paths that give people hope in order to try to get to this country is a much better thing than using this kind of patchwork enforcement and this tug and tug and pull between the right and the left to saying we want to over enforce or under enforce. And it just depends on kind of the vibe at the border and who's going to show up there, which is not a healthy long term sustainable solution. Yeah, I think the turning point here, and this is related to our next segment, is when this record number of people retire in this country and eventually find themselves, a lot of them, with either domestic care or in nursing homes, and there aren't enough nurses and doctors to take care of people and all the other support workers that we need in our medical system. I was talking to my mom yesterday about this. She says she's never seen a shortage like she's seen now. She's getting all these offers to leave her job and go work for this hospital or that hospital. And they're they're throwing like incentives at her like she works in the tech industry. So at a certain point, people are gonna be looking around and there's just nobody to take care of them. And I think at that point, the politics could change here. Let's talk about another layer of those politics. There was this feisty exchange between Joy Reid and Byron Donalds over the solvency of Social Security. My friend Jody Arrington, who's going to chair a budget, he wants to look into the budget and also look into entitlements. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not true. Will. That, that is, is actually, actually not true. No, it's say. actually not now, true. Joy, it's actually I'm a not true. Professional. It's actually not true. But it's actually not true. financial community. That's actually not true. That's actually not true. Social Security will go That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not true. Should we not prepare that is not for true. that? So, Ricky. That's actually not true. Well, <laughs> One, this is why we started this show is because I think most people can't listen to that kind of stuff. So I think we can disagree on stuff without interrupting each other like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, we were talking about this before this aired. So correct me if I'm wrong. Social Security by 2035 would be insolvent, but not bankrupt. Is that correct? Yeah. So my sense is that insolvent in or as in unable to pay back your debts by 2035 does seem to be the case. But the idea that it's completely just like bankrupt and and this is the end of Social Security in 2035 is an overstatement, which is the extreme that some people go to. But just to back up a little bit here, um, as we know, there's most developed countries do have a retirement age, including us in the United States. It's 67 and there's a debate to go older. There are countries that allow it much earlier, but by and large, we're kind of in the middle of the pack. Um, And the UK right now is 66, Germany 65, France 64. And all of those countries are looking to raise the retirement age, which is kind of a debate that's swirling at the moment that boomers are coming of age and we have young people who are paying into a system for more and more elderly people who are living further and further past retirement age. And it's kind of a pay-as-you-go system that we have in the United States. And so we're struggling to keep pulling money from young people's pockets and and helping older people survive as we promised them for their entire life as they paid into the system for their, their elders. But we're at a crisis moment where there's a debate over should we extend our retirement age? Is that something that would be 
good for society because people are working longer and, or would it that be bad for society because people have been kind of promised this age for years down the line. And so it's, it's an interesting debate. I'm definitely not with Joy Reid that that's totally untrue. I think that there is, there are some serious sustainability questions here about the system that we have in place. And the question is, does, does making the retirement age older really help that in the long term? I'm not sure, but that's a starting point. Yeah. People probably know this intuitively because it shows up on your paycheck, but just to state the obvious, social security is financed through a payroll tax and employers and employees each pay 6.2% of wages up to the taxable maximum of $160,200. And the self-employed pay 12.4%. And so um, this is a pay-as-you-go program. So benefits are being paid out today from the payroll taxes collected from today's workers. So it's almost like a Ponzi scheme, except they're they're honest about how they're paying things out. (laughs) So basically we have to keep catching up with future retirees. So obviously if it were a sensible system, the money that the people who retire on today will be paid out by the money they paid into the system over time as yeah. it's accrued interest. That would be the sensible way to do this, but for reasons we probably don't have time to go into on this podcast, that is not what we have today. Well, it's for the reason we that in 1935, in 1935 we wanted it to start in 1935 and so we started paying into the system with the existing employees and for the future retirees at that point going forward. And we'd never adjusted that or really took into account what the long-term would look like if birth rates changed and ebbed and flowed and wages did not um, increase in a proportion that would allow us to sustain the system. Yeah, that plus in 1935, the average life expectancies at birth for males and females were approximately 60 and 64 years. And the age to receive full benefits was 65. So essentially they're saying, yeah. whoa, if you are if you could make it mm-hmm. past the average, we're going to give you money. Uh, nine decades later, life expectancies at birth for males and females are uh, approximately 73 and 79. So yeah. now we've gone up to the point where you are expected to live for at least a decade with those benefits. That's great. That's That sounds like a sensible system, but we haven't accounted for that either. And... This Social Security is the single largest item in the annual federal budget. As a percentage of total federal expenditures in 2002, Social Security was 22.6% of the federal expenditures. And this kind of ebbs and flows, but roughly stays around that area. And this is the question of solvency. This is a passage that I think explains it the best from what I could see. This is from CNBC, quote, as of the end of 2019, the trust fund was up to almost $2.9 trillion. Since 2010, the payroll tax hasn't been enough to cover payments for the massive baby boomer generation that started to retire. So I'm going to pause there for a second. It's worse than what we just described. It's not that we're paying out with the current receipts. Current receipts aren't enough to pay out uh, the obligations we have today. Just to clarify what that trust fund means, there was a 30-year period in which young people were earning more than was needed to pay for the current retirees, which um, kind of around when there were a ton of young boomers that were making money and people weren't living as long. And so we did have this excess payment into the system, which we held, we invested it wisely. Now we're at a point where we need to tap into that trust fund, but that will only 
exist and be there for us to pull from until 2035, at which point I would say by my definition, we're insolvent in terms of we can't pay back our debts. That's what that word means. And at that point in time, we will only be able to um, pay out roughly 75 to 79% of what is promised to retirees. Um, And that would be baby boomers and, um, you know, everyone going forward. And so essentially there's this line in the sand where everyone was paying in and they're now going to start um, getting less out of the system than what they paid in. And that's that's just doesn't seem like a good situation. I don't think changing the retirement age alone really fixes things. I think this is um, kind of a long term just like decision that we need to make. And in, if if it were up to me, I would say we'd draw a line in the sand and say, okay, anyone who starts paying at this point in time, here's this new system that you will buy into until we can um, get everyone who we've promised something to, including everyone who paid into the system, um, kind of settled in their old age. But I mean, I the biggest question to me and the easiest change to make right now is why we have this random income cap at $160,000. That's not sensible to me because mm-hmm. anybody who makes a, above $160,000 is yep. ma- paying in the same amount. Um, that would be one way to kind of even things out. But no matter what, it never made, it doesn't make sense to me that we would not just put a pause on the system and say, okay, from this point forward, anyone who comes into the um, workforce is paying essentially into their own savings retirement, even if that's a forced IRA or something like that, that would be a better system. And then back that up with a legitimate needs-based welfare system rather than just sending social security checks to everybody who's old. Yeah, the politics are this, people are so afraid to to go near this in certain parts of our our politics in part because they think that current and near retirees will go apeshit over this. But that's only if this is messaged so sloppily that people who will feel like they're under threat yeah. who are receiving benefits right now. But if I'm, I'm in my 30s, you're in your 20s, if they came to us and said, hey, now the retirement age is 70, uh, you know, like, are we, no. we going to go crazy? I don't think but so. Also- Who's really planning that far ahead? You may I, raise think it's, it a few I think years. it's still a broken system because I don't think you should be getting a check if you're super financially secure and you saved well when you're 70. I think that should be a welfare-based situation. So here's right. here would be my proposal. At this moment, um, given our trust and what we can pay out, we could hold up at 79% of our obligations until 2090. So that leaves us like, what, roughly 21%. I say that we change... For the time being, we changed that income cap to make up for the difference that higher earning Americans would pay in a little more into the system. I think, I mean, we've promised Americans this. I would not have passed the system, but I was not there in 1935. I pay the same amount and pay in uh, social security taxes as Jeff Bezos pays in social security taxes. Yeah, that makes no, <laughs> that that absolutely makes no sense. Um, and obviously this is fixing an already broken system. This is not ideal, but, you know, then I say, that anybody who is going to retire after 2090 um, starts paying into a different system, which would be people born in the next couple decades. 
Um, and rather than pay into the social security pool for everyone and everyone there right now, you're paying into your own forced retire IRA retirement account. So every month you can see how much money is in there. You can plan. There's a little bit of transparency. Like I didn't know until researching for this segment that the average um, payout for social security is 1500 a month. I bet a lot of people don't know that they're not planning their life with that random number in mind. Um, and so you can see how much is saving, you know, this is held for you until you retire. It's a better system of the government directly helping you save or forcing you to save. I'd rather you not have to do that. I'd rather people be able to do that on their own, but we've created a system where we guarantee this thing to fall back on. And then we create a senior welfare system. That's not an entitlement system and it's based on need. And so if you've hit a threshold where you can afford to live off of the savings that you've accrued over your period of time, then you live off that. If you haven't, if there's some sort of disability issue, if there's some sort of dependence issue, then you apply for a welfare system when you're elderly. And we have that social safety net for the people who need it, not just people who arbitrarily are getting checks in the mail, which some really wealthy Americans end up starting to receive when they hit a certain age, which is mm -hmm. really just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, so much of what you said resonates with me. I think one thing to underscore is that to clarify something from earlier, there are basically two different, three different really mechanisms to pay out Social Security. There's the money that we're receiving for payroll taxes, right? Uh, and that's like what we emphasized. Mm -hmm. There's that trust fund that we talked about because there have been periods of times where we were taking in more money than we were spending. And then there's the interest on that trust yep. fund. Now the interest on that trust fund is fascinating and is something that we need to look at because the, the US is investing the social security trust fund in long-term treasuries, which there's a lot of good rationale for that, right? It's more stable. It's like one of the most conservative investments you can make. But if social security had invested in the S&P, it would have a lot more money than if they were in treasuries. Now, I think we should have a debate about that. And I'm I'm inclined to allow Social Security to invest more in the market itself. Not Maybe not everything, because Social Security may be, you know, you want to plan for the worst possible rainy day. So if, if we do have a sustained period of a, you know, let's say we have a 30-year stock market drop, you know, like Social Security would probably be one of the most critical uh, safety nets we have at that point more, even more important than it is today. So you'd almost want that to be immune in some ways from the market, but maybe you invest 25%, 30% in the market, see, start to see how that goes. I don't know, but I think that could help. Yeah. I, I, I think it could help. I think it's a little riskier. I would agree that you'd only need to, or you'd only want to hedge a certain percentage, but I really think that there's something like more deeply fundamentally broken and going off this trust system. I mean, we're not going to have this trust going forward because we've already, we're already pulling out of it every single year. That's only going to be something to look towards for a few more decades. Um, but I think, right. you know, I think it just needs to be a longer term reform, which would incentivize people to have a more transparent understanding of what their own savings is. I think like there is something fundamentally broken about this system, which is essentially saying you don't have to save for yourself. Like the society or the government will save for you and pay you out and help you live, which obviously elder elder poverty is an enormous issue. And I think where it is, it should be addressed. And, um, you know, we, we do have a service 
that we need to provide as younger people for um, taking care of older Americans and feeling as though one day we will be taken care of as well. But I think that's more case by case basis rather than this sweeping program, which is clearly not working. It's not sustainable. We're having less and less young people born in proportion to the elderly people constantly. And it's just, it's, it will never work out long-term and it's a better system to have as many people as possible, even if it means doing a forced IRA rather than a, a social security system. I think that's better because your money that you pay in should be your money that you take out in the end. And we just have a fundamentally broken pay-as-you-go backlog situation that will never work long-term. Bush tried that. There was a huge debate around that. It was really fascinating. People can, can look it up. And uh, Al Gore had his own lockbox, which is, if you want to Google that, there's some funny humor around that. Uh, but I have a solution as we wrap this up, which is, look, worst case scenario, where it's 79%, 75%. Let's just, let's just get it out of the way now. Let's bet it now. Let's take the entirety of the trust fund and bet on the Buffalo Bills to win the Super Bowl. Ah. Right now, the Bills are plus 325 to win the Super Bowl. That means that we'll make a lot of money. We'll be fine uh, when the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl. But that's all the time we have today. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll be back here same time, same place on Thursday. Get out there and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you know, those positive reviews really matter to us because we're trying to spread the word that we're not like Joy Reid and Byron Donald. We are having civil discussions about really important issues and bring you that depth and nuance that you just don't get elsewhere. So thank you very much, everybody. We'll talk to you Thursday. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espediak.